0: All right, so I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, that I delivered all my children. Um, Esther basically forced me uh, to deliver the first one um, because having a home birth had always been a dream of hers. And 30 years ago, um, it wasn't very easy to find a midwife in Kansas. Um, apparently, California, they were a dime a dozen. But in the Midwest in the late 90s, um, actually early 90s, uh, a home birth, um, the home birth thing hadn't really caught on yet. It wasn't very common. Um, incidentally, it's way more common now um, than it was 30 years ago. So yeah, we're trendsetters. Um, but uh, but because we could only find like one midwife in the entire Kansas City area, and and her daughter um, was due at the same time Esther was, uh, the uh, that obviously meant the only option was for me to do it. Um, which <laughs> obviously was not the only option, but it was the only option my wife gave me. Um, so. So I delivered my oldest son literally almost exactly 30 years ago, um, and I have to say I'm kind of a control freak. Uh, so after delivering my own child and getting to do all the things that the health nuts that my wife listens to said we should do, um, I quickly decided that I probably wouldn't be very good at watching somebody else do it. Like I can't even watch my wife work her own phone. I'm like, would you just let me do it? Would you just give me, let me do it? Um, I'm one of those people. Uh, it's really hard for me to watch somebody else. So standing by and watching somebody else deliver my kids would probably be tough for me. Um I have to be honest, I've delivered 17 kids um, and I only have 16. So that's definitely a story for another day. Um, but uh, but um, and I can't take all like they all went well. We've been blessed, like no big issues. And I can't take all the credit. Esther helped. Um, but um, it hasn't been 100 percent smooth either. Um, my second son came backwards, so I've delivered a breach. Baby, that was exciting. Um, the third one tried to come out sideways. He's right out there playing guitar a minute ago. Um, so every time Esther would have a contraction, the baby would, like, stick out the side. Like And, and that one was fun, because um, when we did everything you have to do to kind of reposition them, um, a bunch of amniotic fluid kind of wedged in, so she has a huge contraction. While I'm doing, like, the Pete Rose thing, you know, and if you don't know who Pete Rose is, you're not old enough for this story anyway. Um, and so... <laughs> I'm doing the Pete Rose thing. She had the contraction, the water breaks, and you could not have gotten me wetter with a gallon bucket of water. It just, just everywhere. I I literally went like this and slicked my hair back. It was, it was, it was a thing. So I still give him a hard time about that um, all the time. My first daughter tried to be born in, in my dirty old work van. I think I've told that story before. But was fun because uh, when Esther went into like heavy labor, right before the kids were supposed to go to school. And, uh, and 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 uh, I thought they should just skip school and and we should focus on what we're doing here. Um, but my rule following wife could not handle the idea of them missing school just so she could have a baby. Um, and it was really stressing her out. And rule number one of a home birth is you don't let the mom get stressed at all. You know, you just want her to be as relaxed as possible so her body can do what it was made to do. And uh, and and so while I'm getting the problem was, while I'm getting the kids ready for school, she decides she has to go to the restroom. And she gets out of bed, and every step she took, she had a monster contraction. So take a step, two, three-minute contraction. The second it would calm down, she'd take another step, which would set off another one. And I'd had, I'd delivered like 11 babies by this point. I know that means it's business time. Like, we're ready to go. And she is committed to the idea that my kids need to go to school. And she promises me she can hold it. I can hold it while you take the kids. And so, uh, and so... <laughs> So I, 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 lay her down. I layered out, like, you don't move, you don't move a muscle, you don't reach out to take a drink, you don't do anything. I drive the kids to school on the longest drive I've ever taken in my entire life. And got home and we had the baby like 10 minutes after I walked in the door. Like, it was, it was that. Which is lucky because, um, Levi, uh, I stepped out of the room to deal with the older kids, kind of give them an update on what's happening, tell them what we need from them. I come back in, I hear us are going, oh. And I'm like, you know, and I look down and the baby's head is out. Like she just didn't even, I'm within shouting range. She doesn't even tell me it's happening. She just, she's totally content to do this on her own um, without me. So, in fact, I told her yesterday, she asked me to open a jar. And I was like, I have, I take this seriously because the second you can open your own jars, I don't think you need me anymore. I'm pretty sure you can do everything else on your own, including have babies apparently. But, um, <laughs> uh, but not that, that, uh, now that we've had 16 kids and despite, you know, the little hiccups we've had, they all went really well and turned out great. And, uh, and Esther stayed strong and healthy. And I can honestly say delivering my own kids has been um, kind of one of the greatest honors of my life. Um, and we generally don't lean into American holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day um, because church is much bigger than America. We try to focus on the church calendar um, to celebrate the holidays that the whole global church celebrates together. Um, I decided to cheat on Father's Day a little and open with some of my crazy um, dad stories. Um, but back in the book, <laughs> we, uh, this week marks um, a major transition in the book of Romans. Um, we've been using the outline of the tabernacle to, uh, to kind of talk about this progression through the book of Romans. And how um, the first three chapters, we kind of stood at the door of the tabernacle, basically confessing our sins, whether they're overt and rebellious or kind of internal and self-righteous, we all stood at the door of the tabernacle and kind of owned our brokenness. And uh, and then from there, uh, the tail end of chapter 3, all the way through the end of chapter 5, we stepped to the altar. And we learned that it wouldn't be us making the sacrifice for our sins, but God Himself um, would pay the price for our sins by sacrificing His own Son in our place. And uh, the new and unique situation created by this act of grace is that we are made right with God. And all the enmity is completely erased, leaving us at peace with God. Um, we leaned in heavily to that. And having our sins paid for by the blood of Jesus, we stepped to the labor for the cleanup process. We've been unpacking this for the last few weeks in chapters 6, 7, and 8. And we'll finish up the cleanup work this morning. Um, which means next week we transition inside. We go indoors. Um, and this is a big deal. Because the entire tone and object of Paul's focus is going to shift pretty dramatically from the way we've been talking so far. Um, There'll be another paradigm shift in chapter 12. There's one going in chapter 9. There's another one going in chapter 12. But next week will definitely be a major shift. And the reason I bring this up this morning is because we're wrapping up the entire outdoor part of the tabernacle. Um, And though we've kind of covered the door, the altar, the laver, the outdoor portion of the gospel journey through this book flows together really naturally. Um, when, When the Jews stood at the door, they laid their hands on an animal, and they that they were going to sacrifice and they confess their sins. And the fact that you're holding an animal pretty naturally leads you to the altar. The animal's there for a reason, to be sacrificed, you go to the altar. At the altar, the animal's sacrificed, and this is bloody, dirty work, so it leads very naturally to washing, to, to the labor, where you clean up from the work you've just done. Um, and I've made a point to try and keep these very distinct uh, and very different stops along um, this journey, because if you mix these up, it gets it gets really bad. Um, if you mix up the cleanup act with the getting saved act, um, you can go backwards. If if while you're cleaning up, you're constantly worried that you're that you're losing your salvation or that somehow the salvation didn't stick or didn't take. That's a really rough way to live. So we we focus really hard on on before we even step to the cleanup, we are at peace with God. That's taken care of. The the altar and the labor two very very different places. But as different as they are, they flow together really, really well. Um, uh, as much as we've worked to keep these elements of the tabernacle separate, the door of the altar, the laver, they go together really well. They make up the outdoor part of the tabernacle. Um, and next week, all that changes, um, which means uh, this week is the, is the conclusion, the summation, um, the final statements on this, out, this entire portion of the gospel journey. And, and as we'll unpack together this morning, this is, this is a big deal. Um, Now, a little warning, this can be um, some contentious text, not because the text itself is that difficult, but because in typical human fashion, um, we often polarize uh, around some of the ideas presented in this text and and sometimes our distaste for uh, a particular theological standpoint, or maybe even the people who hold that standpoint can cause us to fear or resist passages that we feel make a theological case that we don't like. Um, so if you feel that happening this morning, um, I, I offer a couple suggestions. First, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible. Um, so if, if as I'm presenting these ideas, um, this text, uh, and you see a different interpretation than I offer, you do not have to agree with me. That's, that, that is not something um, that we insist on here. It's perfectly okay for you to disagree with me, which brings me to my second point. Try to take the text as it's written. Um, if you feel yourself resisting the text because you're afraid of the implications of of that text and what it means, take a breath um, and try not to fight the text. Try to just let the text um, have its say, um, because of, because of the third thing, which is this. Our brains are really small. <laughs> we are not as smart as we think we are. We're talking about the God of the universe here. Um, there is a really good chance. Um, that we're often going to confront things in the scripture that are too deep and too wide and too rich and too high um, and too glorious for us to understand. Um, so if ever you're reading the Bible and you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. My response would be, well, I would hope not. Like we're talking about the God of the universe here. If it all made sense and has a clean little bow on it, you've probably missed something. Um, because God is a big God and and he's revealed himself as much as he can to us in the scriptures and, uh, and yeah, that shouldn't be easy. Um, that shouldn't be easy. A God that's easy to understand is probably no God. Um, now, uh, I'll have a lot more to say about the struggles over this passage as we go through it, um, but they'll be much easier once you actually know what we're talking about, right? So let's dive into the first part. Um, we left off last week with Paul stressing the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. All the theology in this book has been a little theoretical, um, almost abstract uh, but after laying out all of these um, benefits of believing in Jesus and living according to the Spirit, Paul drops this caveat. If you have the Spirit of God living in you. Um, and, and with that one sentence, Paul takes all that kind of theoretical theology and makes it utterly experiential. Um, that it's not just ideas. Um, We call this the born-again experience, and it's real, and it's transforming. And what Paul is saying is that having faith in Jesus is much bigger than an idea or a worldview or a political platform. Receiving the Holy Spirit is an experience, and it changes us. And we unpacked that last week. Um, The primary role of the Holy Spirit is to confirm with our spirit that we are the children of God. He says that in chapter 8. and this chapter is saturated with the Holy Spirit. Because remember, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit four times before this chapter, six times after, and 22 times in this chapter. It's clearly the focus of this chapter is the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, but in this, in this chapter that's all about the Holy Spirit, Paul, while trying to stress just how paradigm changing this new covenant reality of the Holy Spirit living in us really is, offers a little example um, and that kind of blossoms into this big thought. And that's what we're going to talk about today. He says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, like it's just kind of like, hey, I've got one example. Um, we don't know what we should, uh, what God wants us to pray for. Let's pause right there for a second. Can anyone resonate with that statement? <laughs> like we don't even know how we should how we should pray. We don't even know what to pray for. Like we want to pray, and, and, and but we also want God's will. And if what we really want is God's will, why not just let it spin out how it's going to spin out? Like we get tangled up in that. Prayer can can kind of tangle us. How how far do we take? Do we really want to serve a God that changes His mind because some sinful creature asked for something? Like, and it, and it gets confusing and it's frustrating, um, uh, and so we so we get tangled up. And I get really encouraged that that Paul. Um, let me give you let me give you a quick example. Um, someone you know is going through something painful, difficult, hard, and they might even ask you for prayer, and it's breaking your heart to see them hurting. And yet, you know, in your own life, some of the greatest change, some of the greatest revelation, some of the some of the great maybe the moments that almost saved you came through pain. Like, what do you do? Do you pray that they stay in the pain and God break them? You know, like because you want them to turn to God, or do you pray, God, please have mercy on them? It's hard to know. It's hard to know which one to pray for. Um, you know, some people find it easy to pray, God, break them, drag them through the, the ringer. Some people are like, God, say, like, please protect them and. I'd say then, like, which one do you pray for? I'd like an honest answer, because I want to know who to text when I need prayer. Like, don't you break them people? I don't, keep your prayers to yourself. I don't need you. Um, I want to bless them people. That's who I want to text when I need, when I need. Funny story, Esther has no trouble praying the break them God until they have no choice but to turn to you. Um, prayers, and my kids know that, and so when they're being stupid or contemplating being stupid, She'll be like, that's it. I'm praying for you. And they'd like take it seriously. They're like, Mom, I'm kidding. I would never do that. Please don't pray for me. Please don't, please don't pray for me. Because they know how she prays. They know like, like she has no trouble going, God, just destroy them until they turn to you. Like, and so they're like, they're afraid of Esther's prayers. Like, no, don't pray. Please, please, Mom. (laughs) But Paul is like, prayer can be tricky. We don't even know what to ask for. Like, people say, we talk about prayer like it's one of the obvious, easy ones. Like, you know, just pray. And, but it's, it's hard. Anyone else struggle with this? Like, it's tough. Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, it's a huge comfort to hear Paul saying, um, yeah, I don't know what I pray for either. Like, we all have this problem. It's tough. And, and so this is how he finishes up. Um, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father knows all hearts. Who knows all hearts? knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. Now remember, this starts with Paul talking about the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he says, this is the Pastor Chris translation, um, hey, there's all kinds of ways the Holy Spirit helps us. Prayer, for example. Um, who doesn't get confused and tangled up about what we should pray for? It's not a big deal. When you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, the Holy Spirit prays for you. Um, and God knows when He looks in your heart, and He hears the Spirit praying from your heart and and i promise you the holy spirit knows exactly what to pray for that's what what paul is saying every week during the the prayer of contrition um we pray and for all the prayers which we're not yet ready to give voice would you search our hearts and make intercessions on our behalf as our church family stands with us in agreement for our good we get that from this passage we're we're basically saying hey god all the stuff we missed um, or maybe didn't say right or maybe we even had our theology wrong as we were asking for it um, we all stand together in this moment to say amen to whatever the Holy Spirit is, is praying instead of us like it, we we want to agree with that what the Holy Spirit is saying so Paul's making a, a case for how important the Holy Spirit is and he uses prayer as an example um, and so hang on to that for a second and back burn it. we're going to come back to it now how many of you have heard this verse and we all know that God causes everything to work together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to his purpose. Everybody's heard it. Yeah, we, this is one of our most popular verses. We love this one. When your world falls apart and you can't find light anywhere, this verse is often the, the one glimmer of, of hope you can cling to, like if God can even make this mess Good. And, that, and, and we need this one. This is a, great, a magnificent promise. Um, but did you know that this is attached to the idea of the Holy Spirit praying through us? It's, it's the, the very next verse. actually reads like this. The Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. And we know God can cause everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to the purpose. That, that idea of God working everything to good is not a passive process. It's not just that God... You know, um, automatically, it's that it's a it's the way the Holy Spirit prays for us. Prays for our good. Prays um, for the, for everything to work out for us. So this promise that God will work everything together for good is part of the Holy Spirit praying for us. But here's the funny part. Paul Paul starts off by saying we don't know what to pray for. Now we don't know if to pray, if we should pray, uh, but what we should pray for. The assumption is that we're praying. Um, and, and the problem is that we don't really know what to ask for or how to pray, um, and that, that in that prayerful context of I'm praying but I don't know what to ask for, the Holy Spirit prays for the right stuff. Um, and I might be turning correlation into causation here, but but it seems to me that that our prayers are far more powerful than the words that we pray. Um, the important thing is that we pray. Um, something happens when we pray, um, wh- whatever we're praying kind of releases the Holy Spirit to pray, um, through us and, uh, and God sees through our messy words and selfish words and theologically incorrect words. And he hears what the Holy Spirit is praying for us, uh, and through us. So the important thing is that we pray, that we, we call out to God and trust that we don't have to get it just right. Cause the Holy Spirit is also empowering us. But the most important part um is this of this amazing promise is is that of God giving kind of beauty for ashes no matter how messy it gets he can turn it for good um is we we cry out for help it doesn't matter if our words are just right um because we don't know God's perfect will um Paul didn't know we don't have a chance of knowing and that's okay because the holy spirit does know God's perfect will and he'll steer our prayers toward the good um which is important but one caveat there's two greek words that Paul could have used for good one is agathos, um, which in the lexicon says beneficial, good, well, um, which sounds really good. That's what we're looking for. Um, but there's also the word kalos um, in the Greek, which means beautiful, fair, worthy, good, which sounds about the same. But the lexicon offers this distinction, and I'm, I'm quoting um, the lexicon: it says kalos is used for appearance, um, and thus is distinct from agathos, which is properly intrinsic. Um, so this is like. Uh, Good and well, like well means I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Good is like an intrinsic goodness, you know, kind of thing. In other words, Paul was careful not to say that God works everything together for the pretty. God works everything together for the presentable. God works everything together for the Instagram ready. Like that's that's not what he does. God does not work everything together. Nice, clean, tidy with a little bow on it. Paul used agathos. Um, which means he works together for our intrinsic good, what is actually good for us, our health, our growth, our maturity. It may not be pretty, but it'll be good. Um, does everybody understand the distinction? There's a little difference. Um, now, there is an interesting kind of flow to this chapter that we've seen before in this book. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, and he says this, um, for his spirit joins with our spirit to confirm and affirm that, that we are God's children. We learned, uh, we leaned in pretty hard Um, several weeks ago uh, uh, on the idea that we are God. We we did this last week, so we're not going to belabor that. But he says, and since we're children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Um, But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet uh, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal in us later. Now, um, uh, this leads Paul into a speech about the way creation was affected by sin. We talked about that a little bit last week. Um, but then right in the middle of this kind of transition part, where he's talking about prayer and the Holy Spirit and the way the Holy Spirit prays for us, he drops in this idea of suffering. Um, and he, he's like, in fact, you know, if we're truly heirs with Christ, we'll probably suffer like Christ. Um, and, and, but that can't be compared to the glory that's come later. Um, we were given uh, this hope when we were saved, uh, if you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. But if you look forward to something you do not yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. Um, now, the reason I double back to bring this uh, up, these verses, is because they're remarkably similar to some stuff we talked about in chapter 5. Where he says, therefore, since we have been made right with, in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ Uh, Our Lord did for us because of our faith. Christ has brought us into peace, uh, a place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. And we rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they'll help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, strength of character, um, our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead us to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. So God establishes that we have peace with God. Uh, and only that peace makes us able to to, to rejoice when we run into problems. And we talked in chapter 5 about how someone who does not have peace with God or hasn't internalized that reality um, doesn't go through problems well. They're, they're constantly wondering, did I do something to upset God? Did I, am, I, am I doing something wrong? Have I, have I made some agreement with the enemy that, that's not right? Am I not praying enough? Do I not have enough people praying for me? They're constantly trying to find that magic formula um, to make things right. And Paul's like, once you know, 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 and it's not between, it's not God being upset. It's not God being angry. You're at peace with God and that can't change. It changes the way you go through problems because suddenly you're like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but uh, but I know I'm it's, God's going to use it to make me stronger. He's going to build endurance and that's going to build character. That's going to build my hope. Um, uh, and back in chapter 8, the chapter that opens with there's no condemnation, ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul is basically saying the exact same thing. He's almost repeating himself. Um, he says, yes, we all suffer with Christ, uh, but it builds hope. It builds hope. We go through that differently because God is able to use um, everything for our good. Like it's that same idea that, that we go through struggles differently because we know God loves us in it. And that can't change. Um, and that builds endurance and strength of character and hope. So when we study in chapter 5, wrapping up our time at the altar, chapter 5 was the end of our time at the altar, Paul said, you're at peace with God. And nothing changes that. And that peace changes things, even your suffering. And this morning we're wrapping up chapter 8, which wraps up our time at the labor. And Paul has the exact same message. God's love changes things, even our suffering. Um, so he's, he's clearly repeating the concept. And there's a, a fundamental passage that truly links chapter 5 and chapter 8. Um, in chapter 5, Paul's entire argument is rooted in this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came for us. Uh, Paul's entire argument is rooted in the idea that you could not save yourself. He says over and over again that no one has ever been made righteous by obeying the law. Um, So God did what we couldn't do um, for us. And as a sovereign act of grace, God saved us. Um, And if he did that for you while you were his enemies, how much more grace will he have now that you're his family and his children? In fact, Paul says, um, almost the exact same thing in chapter 8. He says, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him for us, uh, for us all, won't he give us everything else? Like, it's the same idea. If he loved you that much when you were his enemy, how much more grace is there now that you're his child? For some reason, we have this idea that God has grace on sinners, but boy, he sure expects a lot from us once we believe. Like that's when the rules come in. That's when you really and and Paul's making the opposite argument. Like if he loved you that much when he was your enemy, how much more grace will he show you now that you're his child? Um, but the whole argument hinges on the idea that God saved us as an act of grace um, that we did not deserve and could not have done for ourselves. Um, well, back in chapter eight, uh, well we already we already covered that. Sorry, go forward. Um, we know the verse. Uh, 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 he says, you know, we know God calls everything to work together for good for those who uh, love God and are called according to his purpose. Uh, and we know this verse well. We love it. But it begs the question, what does it mean to be called according to his purpose? Because um, that's a big that's a big you know, caveat in this verse. Um, you know, for those who, who love God and are called according to his purpose, which is tricky. And I think Paul understands that this needs more explanation because he follows it up with this. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that His Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, He gave them His glory. Now, this is a heavily debated passage. What does it mean um, that God knew His people in advance? What does it mean that, that He chose those people to be like Jesus? What does it mean that having foreknown them and chosen them, then He called them? What does it mean that that having already called them, He made them right with Himself? And since they've been made right with Him, what does it mean that, that He, past tense, gave them His glory? Calvinists and Arminians, some of the greatest minds to ever live, have gone to theological war Um, with one another for 500 years over passages like this, and I have zero interest in that this morning. I I couldn't hold a candle to some of those thinkers who have weighed in on both sides, so I won't even try. Um, What I will do is let the Scripture stand, and as I asked at the beginning, don't, don't fight against the Scripture. Don't try to talk yourself out of anything. Just accept these truths and choose to believe them. And if they're confusing or even frustrating, chances are God's will and sovereignty and how that plays out in our salvation is much bigger than our human logic. It's much bigger than we'll, than we'll be able to, to easily tie up in a bow. But, but since I don't plan to pretend that I'm ready this morning to put 500 years of debate to rest with my eloquence and intellect, um, What I would like to do is extrapolate a couple really important details from this passage. And and then I'm going to give you a litmus test um, to see if you're reading them right, um, which is fun. So here's big idea number one. Uh, He chose them to be like his son. So you you were chosen. Uh, That's what it says. Don't fight it. That's what it says. But sometimes we get so caught up in the idea of uh, the choosing part that we miss what we were chosen for. We weren't chosen for heaven. Heaven's an awesome bonus, but that's not the point. We weren't chosen so that we could attend church and check off that box on our to-do list that says, you know, spiritual things. We weren't chosen to vote for the right person or avoid sin or or go into the ministry. Paul says we were chosen to be like Jesus. And this is important. I think that means we're chosen to, to be loved like Jesus. So when we read in the Scripture, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, we're supposed to hear that for us. Because we're supposed to be like Jesus. And we're supposed to hear that affirmation from our Father that we're, that we're loved and we please Him. I also think that, 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 that this verse means we're, we're chosen for transformation. We're chosen for a deep work that should rock us to our core. It should never be easy. We should never be able to settle. We weren't just chosen to go to heaven and now we're just waiting out our time. We were chosen to be made like Jesus. We're chosen for a, a work of growth and, and transformation. Um, metamorphosis is one of the words Paul chooses later. That, that, that we're never chosen to settle. We're chosen to keep. This should change everything. It should change the way we work, the way we interact with our families, the way we show up for each other, the way we um, pursue purpose and meaning in the world. And, uh, in a world that is embracing narcissism and hedonism, it sh- we should be different because we were made to be like Jesus. So being saved is, is, is not all it's about. Yes, we were chosen and heaven is, a, is an amazing part of that and piece of that. We look forward to it. But you were chosen for more than that. You were chosen to be like Jesus and that choosing is important. Second big idea. He gave, he gave them right standing with his self. You were chosen and called. There's plenty of debate over where the human will plays in here. If you were called, does that mean you have to answer the call? Uh, there's room for those discussions. Uh, but the point that Paul makes is crystal clear. God makes you right with him. God does it. We we, we don't get right with God. God saves us, period. God knows us, chooses chooses us, calls us, and He makes us right with Himself. I stress this because I believe Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. It doesn't always turn out that way, and I don't know why. Um, but, but Paul says over and over again in all of his letters that we cannot boast about being Christians. We don't get to feel superior We don't get to do that. However, salvation happens, probably in some way that's bigger than any of us have dreamed up or could explain, if we're honest. But one thing is certain. We are saved because God chose to save us. And this has to make us humble. We do not get to look down on the rest of the world. Jesus told a parable of a servant who who had a huge debt that was called due. The servant begged for mercy and, and made an empty promise about how he'll pay it back if he just has a little more time. The master felt compassion and forgave the debt. And that servant turned around and went to another servant and and demanded a small debt get paid. And and the the punishment that Jesus promises this servant is brutal. It's brutal. I'm honestly not too interested in the nitty-gritty of exactly how salvation happens or times out. We read we we read the verse last week where Jesus says it's like the wind. You know when it's there but it's really hard to pin down. You know you know when it's there, but you can't tell where it came from, where it's going, but I, I'm good with that metaphor. I'm fine with that metaphor towards salvation, that it's it's beyond my understanding. But I know when I, I know when the Holy Spirit's there. But what I'm far more interested in is that however you get there, you know in your guts know that God saved you and there's nothing for you to do but be grateful and humble uh and worship him for his great love for you. If you felt like you earned it and you feel like I'm a good person, you feel like like in any way you truly deserve this, you're missing what Paul is saying. You're totally missing it. However far you make it down the transformational journey to be like Jesus, be very, very careful before you look down on anyone else. Don't become the wicked servant that Jesus warned us about. God made you right with Himself. And that's important for His own pleasure and purpose. Okay, big idea number three. Um, he gave them His glory. Uh, having having given them my sanity, He gave them His glory. This is a tricky word um, in the Bible uh, because glory in the Greek and glory in the Hebrew are two very different words and the English will just say glory. Um, and so in the Hebrew, the word is kavod. Um, and in the, the Greek, the word is duxadzo, um, Daksadzo. Uh, I generally try not to do too much Greek work, but here we are doing it twice in the same message, which is weird. Um, Daxadzo means to render glorious or full of honor or majesty, um, which is more like what we think of when we think of glory. Um, in Hebrew, the word kavod means weight or importance or significance. So when the, when the Old Testament says that God's glory filled the temple uh, and the times when God's glory falls and people can't stay, the word is weight. His, the, the weightiness and impact of his presence settled. And people oftentimes had to leave or they were, fell on their faces. Like, so it's, it's not like shiny, pretty glory. It's like heavy, impactful, you know, kavod. The word even sounds heavy, kavod. You know, God's kavod fell. In the New Testament, it, it means what we think of as glory, like majesty and, and beauty. And, and uh, this New Testament word is splendor. Um, it's often translated splendor. And here's why that's important. I spent several minutes stressing how the only fruit of salvation should be humility. Right? The only thing we should get if we truly understand how God chose us is to be humble and grateful and to, to, to worship him and love the cross for what it did for us. Um, that, that we are not special. We are not other than the fact that we're chosen. We didn't do anything to get saved. Um, or didn't do anything right to get saved. We aren't better than the unsaved. We're just chosen by God as an act of His grace. But that doesn't mean we're worthless. That doesn't mean that, 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 you know, we, we walk around, you know, feeling worthless. On the contrary, in Christ, we have splendor and honor and glory. And we should, we should understand that, that this creates a tension because how do we both Live knowing that there's nothing special about us. God just chose us. But also that he gave us his glory and that in, in him we are glorious. We do have value and we do have like real purpose and can have a real impact for good in the world. And the only place I think we can go for that tension is in Jesus. Like we see it in Jesus' life all the time. This weird self-possession without any pride. Um, wielding the power of God while also telling people to keep it quiet. Like, how do you do some big thing and then go, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Like, that's like real um, confidence when you're like, you don't have to go televise this. You don't have to, to let the whole world know. He was accused of being an alcoholic and a glutton and, and never felt the need to defend himself. Um, the only time we see him getting upset is in the defense of others or God's house. You never see him defending himself and his own reputation. He was the epitome of humility and glory. And we were chosen to become like Him. Which brings us full circle. Now, I promised a litmus test. Right? I promised a litmus test to see if you're reading this passage right. So let's look at the passage again. For, for God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son. And that His Son, that His Son would be the firstborn above many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, He called them to come to Him. And having called them, He gave them right standing with Himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. And here's how we know if you're reading that passage right. The very next text reads like this. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? What shall we say about... Paul tells us exactly how this passage should hit us. And if you're reading it right, your heart should soar. These words should hit our heart as wonderful. Paul just assumes when he writes it, you're gonna hear those words and just and just I don't even know what to do with that kind of love. Like that it should just we should just be in awe. He says it right there, like and he's assuming we're with him. What do we do with news like this? What do we do with something this awesome? Remember, this is still the vertical gospel where we're dealing with our own relationship with God. And when you focus on that alone, I was known. I was chosen. I was called. I was saved. I was given glory I don't deserve. I was loved that much. The only practical, heart-level response is what on earth do I do with things this wonderful? Now, if you play God and you go above your pay grade and you try to figure out what this means for everybody else and for the whole world, blah, 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 you'll get frustrated and you'll get tangled up. And that's not where Paul wants us. He tells us where he wants us. If you go above your pay grade and you try to figure out all the logistics of how everything is supposed to work out and you try to step into that God role and you'll get upset and you won't have this response and that tells you you're reading it wrong. That tells you you missed it. Go back and read it again until your heart soars. And only when your heart is soaring are you reading this passage right. He gave us a litmus test. If your heart's cry is, is that you were known and chosen and called and saved and honored and, and your heart's desires to marvel at that and wonder at such things, you know you're reading it right. Now, the reason that I think this is uh, so important important to truly and deeply grasp this, this kind of highly contested passage. The reason I think we need to, to know that we are known, chosen, called, saved, and glorified is because Paul follows this passage with some of the most encouraging scripture in the Bible. Just like being at peace with God summed up all of our time at the altar, you are, you are now at peace with God. I want you to know what just happened here. Jesus sacrificed his son. Here's what happens. You are at peace with God. That's the big idea here. This sums up our time at the labor. And Paul kicks this beautiful, rich passage off with one one of those transition words, therefore, or what shall we say then? You know, basically one of those transition statements that says, because this is true, this is true. Because you you were known chosen, called, saved, and glorified that makes this true therefore those transition words are really, really important if you don't get the last part you won't get this part which is why I think it's so important to get that part and stay there until your heart soars the way Paul says it should but here's how Paul follows up us being known, chosen, called, saved, and glorified he says, what shall we say then about such wonderful things as these if God is for us, who could be against us Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he give us? Won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us, whom God chosen for his, whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life, and he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have troubles or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. We need to get this in our guts I hope you see why it's so essential to get the idea that we're saved by a sovereign act of God's grace. Because if you have to do something or act a certain way or perform a certain way in order to be saved or stay saved, can you imagine how differently the idea of who can, who dares accuse us? That will look very different. Because if you feel like you have to maintain something to be there, of course you're going to feel accused on a regular basis. Of course you're going to feel condemned at times when you mess up. If you feel like your salvation is dependent on your behavior, you feel constantly accused, constantly condemned, constantly uh, this never-ending feeling of pressure. The only escape from those things is to believe that you couldn't do anything to get saved and you certainly can't do anything to stay saved and keep it. If God truly knew, chose, called, saved, and glorified you, then He will certainly finish the job He started. And of course, Paul brings this back to suffering and pain. And this is something that I simply don't know what to do with today's church. We have somehow come to the conclusion that suffering and pain are evil and that God would never want us to experience any of those things. And if we are experiencing those things, then something is clearly wrong, either with our behavior or possibly our vulnerability to the enemy, and we aren't praying hard enough or we need to fast or who knows what. But we've come to this conclusion that somehow pain is is negative and God would never be okay with that. And that just doesn't add up to the scripture. Paul says, does this mean that we're no longer loved if we have trouble or calamity or persecution or hunger, destitute, danger, threatened with death? No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours in Christ Jesus. True peace in this world is never the removal of pain and stress. True peace is actually knowing that no matter what the circumstances, you are loved and known and chosen and called and saved and honored by God the one who truly matters. Now, Paul's concluding statement is not just a a conclusion to chapter 8. It's a conclusion to the entire labor and really everything we've read up to this point. He's looking back on his entire teaching on sin, that we're dead to sin even though we still sin. That we're free to do good even though we don't always do it. We find the more we stop sinning that sin is a noun. It's not just something we do. It's something that's inside of us. Something that we drag this dead body around. And in the end, the only real question is, do we have the Spirit living in us? Are you born again? And if so, there's no condemnation. And Paul concludes this entire debate about sin and and cleaning up at the labor and everything that has to do with our sin with this statement. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. I've looked through all of it. I've dug through all of it. I've wrestled with my sin. I've fought the fight. I've done, I'm convinced that nothing can separate Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears for today, or worries for tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above, the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we stood in chapter 5, and I told you that we were wrapping up the altar and about to transition into the cleanup process where we actually wrestle with our sins. And I stress how important it is to truly grasp that we're at peace with God before we step into that process. Or you can easily get buried if, 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 you, if you don't. If you try to wrestle with your sin when you don't know you're at peace with God, it's a, it's a totally different fight. I said it would be like me... Making, not making my bed because I like it made or because I, I know my wife likes it made and I like making her happy, but making my bed because I'm afraid she'll leave me if I don't. That would be a terrible way to live. That would be a terrible marriage. That would be horrible. It's no different with God. If you're doing things because you're afraid you're going to make Him angry or you're afraid you're somehow going to set Him off, that's a terrible way to live with God. So we absolutely drilled that we're at peace with God. This morning Paul's making the same statement. He's saying, I am convinced... Not only are you at peace with God, but nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can separate you from the love of, of, of God in Christ Jesus. Now here's why the, the context of books like this are important. Paul says he's convinced that nothing can separate you from God's love. Like, like everything that's gone before this should lead to this conclusion. Everything that's gone before in this book should lead you to where are like, okay, I'm convinced. I'm convinced nothing can separate me from the love of, of Christ we, but we tend to study the scripture in, in little bites and a verse here and a verse there in small sections that we pull out one of the reasons like Romans is a tough book to teach because I could have spent two years on this verse but we would have gone verse by verse and we would have lost the 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 big picture context I'm trying really hard to hold it all together because Paul wrote this in probably one or two settings and they read it probably all at once like they read it like a letter they didn't Pull it apart in pieces like we do. They read it like a letter. It would have been big ideas. We tend to study so small that sometimes we miss it. If you do this book uh, and you pull out little passages, you can make some of those passages say the opposite of what they make in context. You can make some of these little passages like really wonky if you don't keep them in context. What I love about this book is it flows from thought to thought to thought. And so when Paul says, I am now convinced... What he's saying is that's where you should be if you read this book right up to this point. If you catch everything I'm saying, if you get everything I've said so far, you should be convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Based on all the stuff I've written, here's the conclusion that should be obvious. If you take anything in this book out of context, you could miss that that he gave us a litmus I titled this sermon the litmus test. He gave us a litmus test of whether we're studying the book right. If you're studying this book right, you should be convinced just like he is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate you from God's love. So this morning is full of litmus tests. If you're in chapter 8 right, you should be filled with wonder. What do I do with such wonderful things as these? And that should, that should birth gratitude for what God has done for you. And if it doesn't, read it again and again and again. Stay in it until you are just overwhelmed with wonder. Because Paul tells you in the text how you should respond. And if you read the first half of this book and you don't come to the conclusion of absolute security and safety in God's presence, then you did not come to the conclusion Paul was aiming for. Because he tells you what he was aiming for. I'm convinced. And nothing can separate me. So how do we respond to this? I opened this morning's message by telling some of our birthing stories and, and how honored um, I, am, I, I am to have gotten to be so hands-on in that process. And, uh, and I stayed pretty hands-on as a dad. I'm, I'm a pretty hands-on dad. I'm pretty engaged in my kids' lives. I like uh, teaching them and training them and spending time with them. And, and uh, I take all that stuff really seriously. Um, but I've probably blown it more as a dad than I've gotten it right. Honestly, one of the weirdest things of having, you know, a 30 year old son and a five year old son um, and almost everything in between is the fact that you get to to parent in multiple kind of cultural generations. That's very strange. When I was, uh, you know, raising my oldest son and we were at a restaurant and he was acting up, I would just say, we're going to go get a spanking. And you just felt like the restaurant was was like applauding you like, yeah, whoop his butt. Good job. Well done. Now, you know, you're afraid to look at your kids mean at a store, you know, you'll get arrested. Like, you get to see how much culture changes around things like that. It's weird. Um, but also, you get to you get to raise kids in different phases of your life. I'm a very different person than I was when I raised my older kids. I'm very different than I was with my five-year-old now than I was when Josiah was five. I can remember exact instances when I went way too far with discipline. I look back now and I was like, I just beat that kid. And he had no idea why. That's terrible. Like I look back and, like I remember times when he just, you know, went too far. And I, you know, and now I look at my five-year-old, I'm like, "Eh, what was I doing? That's, you know, you get to look back. I blew it way more than I got it right. While I'm raising uh, my five-year-old now, I can remember how immature and an experience I was when my oldest was five. I can remember exact instances when I blew him off. I've got things to do. I want to go hang out with the buddies. I can remember times I passed up opportunities. I can remember times I got caught up in my own world and and rather than listen to his laments about his little world. Like, you don't even know what problems are. You know? I taught them a lot of bad theology. <laughs> like, I look back at some of the stuff I believed back then and taught them like it was fact. I was like, whew, boy... I could have really messed them up. I passed on a lot of my bad habits. As a dad with ADD, believe me, time management's not a strong thing in our family. And there's nothing worse than being here for worship practice on Sunday mornings and my kids are late and I'm frustrated. And I'm like, they, they got that from me and it drives me crazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I got a lot of things right, too. But it's weird how easy it is to isolate individual moments and come to conclusions about whether you're a good dad or a bad dad. Blah, blah blah. You can take any moment out of context, and and I'd be a monster. Or you can take another moment, and I'm like dad of the year. And here's the weird thing about being a dad: on the good days and the bad days, when I'm being patient uh, amid. Um, them losing their cool, or when I'm losing my cool, when I'm emotionally present, or when I'm a million miles away, whether I'm giving them a high five or a kick in the pants, what's going on in my heart is this crazy, unexplainable, all-consuming love for my kids. And they don't always get that, of course. At least not until they're older and they can experience it for themselves, but... I leave them uh, and go to work often with them like clinging to my leg. Don't go, Dad, don't go. You know, and I have to like pry them off my leg and break their heart because I want to provide for them. Like, love is driving that weird abandonment. The very first time I smack their little hand because they're trying to reach for fire or stick a fork in an outlet, they're like, how could you do that? They don't understand. I just saved them. And like my love for them, like... Wanted to protect them from harm. I get angry when they're acting like turds because I love them and I want them to be everything God made them to be. And it it like offends me deeply at some level to see them going in a direction that's going to take them away from God. Of course, they don't see that. They just see dad's judgmental and he's one of the church people. They don't understand the way my heart breaks. They can't see that. I push them, I discipline them, I hug them, I challenge them, I sing to them, I scream at them, I encourage them, I teach them, I pray for them, all because I love them so much. And As different as all those things look to them, being a dad is about my heart for them, my love for them. All the different variations, and if you pull any of them out of context, you'll miss it. But as a whole, it's driven by love. I love them like crazy Like only a dad can love them. When Paul says at the end of chapter 8, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. What he's saying is it's all love. Everything that comes from God is saturated with love. Telling you that you're a wicked sinner at the beginning of this book is love. Sending Jesus to pay the price for your sin, love. That's an easy one. Telling you you can't just sin because grace has come, that's love. Reminding you that you were created for more and that and that you'll only be happy when you step into the purpose you were made for. That comes from love. Telling you no matter how hard you try, your flesh will always serve sin. That's love. Saying the Holy Spirit to live in you and to convince you that you're His child. That's love. If God disciplines you, love. If He lets you into a hardship so you can grow, Love. If he feeds you from his own hand love, if he lets you go hungry so you can figure out how to feed yourself, that's love too. And if me, wicked, sinful, selfish me, can look at my relationship with my kids and honestly recognize that pretty much all of my actions, the ones that felt like love and the ones that didn't, were motivated by my father's love for them, then how much more can we trust the perfect heart of a sinless God? no matter what it might feel like at times, love for us, we cannot fathom. It doesn't matter if He's telling us we're a sinner and, and it stings to hear. It doesn't matter if He's telling us to be holy, even if we can't. It doesn't matter if I'm suffering. It doesn't matter you know, what's happening. Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from my Father's love. So the way that I would love to respond to this message is to do some math. You guys ready for a math problem? My circumstances plus my understanding equals God's love. When we look at that, what we tend to do is go, my circumstances are a fixed quantity. What's happening is happening. I lost my job or, you know, something terrible is going on. That's a fixed quantity. My understanding is a fixed quantity. I know how the world works. I know know my worldview. So if those things add up, God either loves me or doesn't love me. We do math like the variable is God's love. And what I'm asking is, your circumstances are fixed quantity. They are what they are. God's love is a fixed quantity. The Scripture says, nothing can separate you. The variable is your understanding. Let the variable be... be, If If this is a circumstance, and I know God loves me, then I'm clearly not understanding something, and that's okay. It's okay not to get it. It's okay not to understand. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to say, I don't understand the math. I don't understand how it adds up. I just know these are my circumstances. I know God loves me. I'm convinced that nothing can separate me from that. So I'll wait until I understand better. I am convinced. I promise you that everything changes, everything that changes in your relationship with God, everything changes in your relationship with God when you get this when you get that I am convinced that He loves me. So whatever else is happening, I'm convinced that He loves me. I drill back in chapter 5, we're at peace with God, no matter what happens. And here Paul makes a list. Not death, life, angels, demons, fear, stress, whatever. I don't care what the circumstance, I don't care what goes in that variable, it equals God's love. So somewhere this week, I challenge you, write the words, I am convinced, somewhere. Somewhere. Put it on social media, hashtag it, whatever. If you're going through something hard, post that and hashtag, I'm convinced nothing can separate me from God's love. I'm convinced. Do something to remind yourself this week. I am convinced that nothing can separate me from God's love.